Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help. Catherine Gildner is the author of Good Morning Monster. A therapist shares five heroic stories of emotional recovery. Catherine was a clinical psychologist in private practice for 25 years. Her best-selling memoir, Too Close to the Falls, was published to international acclaim. She currently lives in Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Gildner. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for inviting me. Good morning, Monster. This book like captivated me, interests me, horrified me. Wow. I'm particularly interested in Laura and Madeline. I like can't stop thinking about their stories and all the stuff they went through as kids. I have so many questions. Okay. So first of all, can you just tell listeners what your book, Good Morning Monster, is really about and what inspired you to write this? Good Morning Monster is following five patients who've had a really traumatic life. And I, I guess I got sick of reading all these sad cases all the time about how people just bottomed out. And I thought, wow, I've had people who've lived through absolute hell and they've managed to cling and maintain their sanity. So I wanted to write about, I wanted to write about psychological heroes. You know, heroes are always these action figures, right? And, and I wanted to write about how these people, I mean, to be a hero, you have to fight against something that's much bigger than you. That, otherwise, you're not a hero, right? So, I mean, these people managed to do that and they managed to come out with their sanity. And I wanted to say, you know what? This is heroic. And I, and I think it was when Alana said to me one day, oh, I'm such a screw up. And I wanted to say, because she said, I taught this guy computer science and now he's, you know, everyone knows him, but I'm the one that taught him. And I said, you know what? He had two parents who sent him to Harvard. He's been in, you know, all of these great, he had all these opportunities. And you, I said, if you lined up everybody who had been treated the way you've been treated, they'd be in back rooms of mental hospitals, right? I said, you won't, you aren't seeing people that have been treated the way you have, and you would see that you're a real hero, you know? So I wanted them to see, because they were, you know, people compare themselves to other people who've had advantages, nor, or normal parents, and they say, you know, what's wrong with me? So I wanted people to see, you know, 
you can, a lot can go wrong and you can still pull it out. Wow. So this is not your first book. In fact, you talk in this book about how you left your practice for a while, wrote, and then were dragged back in by a very persuasive Duncan who like just, you couldn't take no for an answer. (laughs) I know, I know. So tell me about the sort of intersection in your life between therapy and writing and what made you stop therapy for a while, start writing, and now like meld the two like this? Right. Well, I mean, I, I joke that at age 50, I ran out of empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I had just worked, re- I just worked too hard. And then I said, okay, I, I also wrote a column for Chatelaine, which is kind of like, you know, Red Book or Good Housekeeping in the US. I wrote it in Canada. And so it's, you know, giving unwanted advice to people that haven't asked for it. So I, I wrote that for 15 years. And people said, you know, oh, you have a turn of phrase and you should do this or that or the other thing. And then I was at a dinner party once and someone was said, oh, I was 16 years old and, you know, I was so terrified to go to camp and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, she's, and I said, didn't your parents ever have you get a job? And they said, no, no, she said never. Cause I, you know, I, she, they like me to take courses in the summer. And I said, well, I, I don't understand that. Cause I worked full time from the age of four. So then people said, oh my God, you should write that up, right? So I wrote my first memoir and I was shocked. It was on the bestseller list for 150 weeks or something. Then I wrote the second and the third and then my life ended at 25 when I married, right? So I didn't write <laughs> anymore. <laughs> life is over when you have children and marry, right? As, you know, as the title of your blog says, yeah. And then I, I wrote a novel about my PhD because I was interested in the philosophy of science on Darwin's influence on Freud, And then it took me, honestly, 25 years. I think I was so burned out from being a therapist that after 25 years, I started thinking about all of these people and they kept coming into my mind. And I I was walking down the street one day with a friend and there was a guy, very sad man, lying on a a grate trying to get warm, homeless. And she said, look at him. He's able-bodied. He's like 25 years old. Why can't, I mean, why can't he walk in and ask somebody for a job? And I just thought, you have no idea what this person has gone through. I mean, if they didn't have arms and legs, you'd feel sorry for them, right? But you don't see what's gone on in somebody who's had a horribly difficult life. You, you don't, if you could see their brain or you could see all their memories, you'd say, oh, that poor thing. But, you know, people don't. So I thought, I, thought, I am going to write that book, you know. And, and yeah, people like Alana kept coming back to my mind. So I wanted to write it. But I needed a long break before I wrote. Yeah. How did you pick these patients? And I know you said there's sort of some are composites and you didn't use real names, yeah. but how did you come up with these five for Good Morning Monster? Well, it's, it's really ridiculous because I'm a <laughs> quantitative person. So what I did was I said, I have to go over every patient that I've had. First of all, I sat down and made a list of these five when I thought of writing the book. And then I went and went over every file, said, maybe I should do this. Maybe the demographic would be better if I did that. Maybe I went through all this stuff. And then I I just did the first five that were still in my heart. You know, I I thought I went through all the marketing stuff and all that. And I thought, it doesn't matter. If I don't write about people that I really, that are still in my psyche after 25 years, it's not going to work. So those were the five people that I came up with. I thought it was really interesting that you said that good therapy, there has to be some sort of connection. Like you can't not like your patient. You have to, it doesn't have to be like is the wrong word, but you have to feel that sort of bond with them in some way to go through it. Tell me a little more about that. Well, when I, when I say you have to like your patient, you have to bond 
in some way to that patient. Like I, I for a, a number of years in this, I worked in a psychiatric hospital in forensic. Those are psychiatric problems, but also criminals, right? So even if they said, you know, I killed my mother, I couldn't take another second, right, of my stepmother. I had to sort of empathize with that. And I had to say, oh, okay. And it, but then I had to see it totally from his perspective, right? And sometimes I can't, you can't see other people's perspective. You know, like there's certain things that, like, for example, I don't see obsessive compulsives because I just don't relate, you know, like, well, because they obsessively talk about the same thing, right? So, I mean, I, in a lot of that, I try not to see people where there's something a little bit wrong with their brain. Like with obsessives, they usually are born that way, right? So, I, so I try, I, I would much rather see like somebody who is perfectly okay and then just got off the path. And then I like to work together to, to bring them back. But I mean, but there are people that you just don't click with. You know, oh, I, actually, I, I, I was saying this the other day. Sorry, I, I, I cut the grass today and I think they put napalm on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's killing me. But, you know, what my editor pointed out, which is silly because I'm not, I mean, I'm a psychologist and I should have seen this myself, is that every single one of those people, women in the book, were raised by their father. Yeah. And I was too. So I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that is, I, I didn't see that ever. Right. And I thought, how could I not have seen that? Because that's it's true of all the women. Like you know, the mothers are distant figures or or troubled figures, and the father is the is the major parent. So I think unconsciously I related to that. I feel like this book is also one of those truth is stranger than fiction examples, because if you had made this up, it would be it would have been too far fetched. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that these yeah. that parents could leave, for instance, that a father could leave his three kids in a cabin in the woods, you know, and have a nine year old take care of them, and that another father, and even that a couple could go off to Russia and leave their eleven year old daughter alone in the house for months. I mean, it's it's like I don't know some of these things. I'm like, could this really happen? And yet right. it did. And you have to deal with the aftermath. And I right. thought one of another really interesting interesting part of this story was that some of the things that seem so obvious to us as like sort of, nor- not, I mean, not to call myself normal in any way, but let's just say like, I don't know. Well, as a regular, a regular reader of this could obviously see the huge holes in the parenting and the detriment done. And, and yet other, the, the patients themselves saw it as just life, right? Like they didn't know any different. Absolutely. Like look at Laura, the when the father left her, she said, what is the problem? I was already eight years old. Mm-hmm. I could handle that. Right. And so, I, I mean, I had to spend a lot of time explaining what an eight-year-old could do. I took her to see eight-year-olds. That was right. so great. I loved and, that. And, yes. And, uh, so she saw all of them, but she's kind of funny in her own way. Amusing. I mean, so when we got in the car, I said, well, and she said, well, they were immature. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it took her a long time because the father was like, I need you to be an adult. And she said, okay, if you lo- love me for, and, and I'll be an adult, you know, that was their deal. Right. He never criticized her, but she had to, to be the adult. And I mean, that and that so she her childhood wasn't that hard. But what was hard was when she was an adult and she began looking for other for men to be with. She always picked people that she had to take care of because she was bonded to that behavior. Yeah. She, she misunderstood bonding for love. And I feel like you're so good, obviously, at seeing all these patterns that the patients themselves can't even see, even like Madeline in terms of how she staffed her company, right? Oh. That you can that you can oh. recreate, which is something I had never really thought about before that you hear about, you know, people marrying 
spouses that have some of the characteristics of their parents that they're still sort of wrestling with. But it hadn't occurred to me that people do this in the workplace, that you could you could have people work for you who have the same thing. Tell me a little about that. Well, um, that was something that that Madeline and I worked on all the time because she always made the point that she, that they she she was in a very specialized field, you know. So she said, "Well, he he's the only person in the world that can do this, mm-hmm. right?" And I would say, "That's ridiculous. He's rude all the time. Like if he would see me, he'd say, "Are you here again?" I mean, this is ridiculous behavior, right?" She said, "No, we all have to put up with it because." But I said, "No, you had to put up with your mother because you didn't have a choice." But yeah, yes, he is the only Hungarian that can understand, you know, 14th century religious iconography. But I'm sure there are others, you know. So I mean, she's surrounded, and she surrounded herself with incredibly different, difficult clients you know, like people that were in the mafia in other countries, et cetera. And they had, you know, it was just awful. Because I mean, who has millions and millions of dollars, right? Some very good people and some people that are bad, right? So she would be like, you know, they would then not pay their bill. And I'd left all of that out because I didn't want to be killed myself. <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, she, she recreated her family. And her family was, I mean, the insanity that happened with her mother, her biological mother, and then the, and then Kathy, who her father ends up with next. Oh, it's I like know. unthinkable that that, that her stepmother would essentially break all of the antiques in her childhood home, not let her back in, and, and that, that this sort of went on, and that the father would tolerate. Yeah, it. that just kept yeah. going on, and he's like, sorry. You know, yeah. <laughs> I know. And that's when she had her huge collapse was after that antique thing. And then I think he felt so guilty that he actually followed me to a coffee shop every day and said, please be, you know, be her therapist. I said, I'm retired. I'm, you know, finally he, you know, he's a successful businessman, right? He wore me down. Right. Yeah. So I finally said, you know, okay, I will do it. But I mean, people think, oh, I wanted to include Madeline because people think people that have a lot of wealth are happy. And that money really makes you happy. I mean, it's so trite, right? But what they don't realize is that like very often, like he was from a very independently wealthy family for goes back generations in Canada. And his name is a very common name in the newspapers and everything. And now there were gold diggers after him. Right. I mean, that's what, that's what, you know, it's an old fashioned term, right? Mm -hmm. But before women, this is in the thirties, right? This is before women had a chance to be what they wanted to be. So your only chance in life was marry this wealthy guy. So her mother sent her to the Hamptons and said, don't come home unless you're engaged to him, right? And so, I mean, he, I mean, you can say, why would you marry someone so awful? Well, she put on a really good act for about four or five months. And then she, she recognized that he wasn't the type to get a divorce. We don't divorce in our family, you know, that, that sort of thing. And also, I mean, the wealth covers a lot of pathology. You know, I mean, because, I mean, the editor pointed this out to me, and that's when I included it in the book. If you had, like, Laura was abandoned in a, mm-hmm. you know, in a tiny cabin, right? But Madeline was abandoned, too. Yes. She, you know, her parents went to Russia, and then, you know, the alarms went off, you know, the alarm from the, a storm, the police came, and the police were terrified of the family because they lived in a huge estate, and they said, oh, well, okay, I guess she'll be okay. If, she, if they lived in a housing project, they would have immediately called CAS and gotten help for her. But, you know, they were insulated by this, by this wealth, and then, you know, neurosis didn't appear as neurosis. So interesting. Oh my gosh. I know I couldn't believe that whole scene and that the neighbor had to get her housekeeper, his daughter to come visit. And I mean, the whole, I mean, just 
you know. That housekeeper's daughter is still with her. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. He still lives. She's just, has made several moves with her and still, yeah, that is an interesting bond. It was also funny to me that you admitted several times mistakes that you felt like you had made in your treatment. And I guess you know that like therapists must make mistakes, but it had never really, I had never really thought through how, like how much that would stay with you or what you, what you would view as a mistake and why. And anyway, tell me about some of that and like the regret of some of the ways you've handled things versus all the great things, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I wanted to show how much I'd grown as a therapist that people, you know, when you first start out, you don't know anything, mm-hmm. right? You know, everything in books and, and you can get straight A's and, you know, feel really confident. But my first patient was Laura who walked in and said, I'm not giving a history. Yeah. You know, forget it. Those are the village idiots. She said, I'm not giving a history. And I thought, oh my God, this isn't like school at all. You know, and I mean, every single case I saw, you'd say, I'm collecting a history, right? Even if they were psychotic and said they were the Virgin Mary, they gave a history, right? So I I thought I'm the one that has to make this happen during the hour that it's happening. Like it's it's only 50% academic. The rest of it is finding a way to deal with people's defenses. Yeah, so I thought it would, the, the whole thing would be, I'm going to show how I learned with each case. And then by the end, I'll be like, you know, a pretty good therapist, right? The opposite happened. The opposite happened, right? But my, I made majority of mistakes in my last case, which was the Madeline case, you know, and, and I just, I just couldn't figure out what I had done wrong. And then, you know, I realized everybody has uh, transference. Everybody, you know, Duncan was very like my dad, you know, starch shirt, vest every day, you know, tie. And, you know, he ran a business as well. She was an only child. They never ate at home. We never ate at home. The father always said, you know, like sometimes the mother would be so bad that the both the father and the daughter would run into each other in the basement and they would eat Cheerios together. <laughs> I know. So, so, but my, my mother wasn't bad at all, but I mean, I recognized all of these things that, that were similar, but I didn't, I didn't understand. And I never held him responsible. I mean, I'd say, well, he can't do it. I guess he just can't, you know, get his second wife to, you know, let her in. But I never really laid into him about that. And, and, you know, and, and, and he, brought me into this chaotic scene of flying into New York with all of these, you know, distractions all around me where I was like, you know, so, I mean, I shouldn't have allowed any of that. Right. And so then when I went, I went and examined it, I realized it was like, he was like my dad and my dad had a brain tumor and lost his mind at 45, I think, or 50. And so he was my father before everything fell apart. And I was kind of, and I was protecting him. You know, yeah. So anyway, one time somebody was looking at the paper and they looked at the picture of Duncan and said, gee, that looks like your dad. You know, so oh, it was wow. like, it wasn't just me that thought that, right? But, you know, I should have, but I did finally go and get my own therapy and said, you know, like, what's going on here? And he said, it's so obvious. It's like, you know, psych 101, father attachment, you know? So you have to be really careful of making those kinds of mistakes, for the Danny thing, the Danny is, uh, I don't know if you know that in Canada, you probably do, but, you know, in the U.S., everything is a black, white race problem, right? I mean, that, those are your, that's the big problem. In Canada, it's native white issues. 
So that's the news every night. That's, you know, because there's, we have way more natives and there's been huge amount of, you know, residential schools where everybody hasn't been parented, you know, so that, that is sort of Canada's national problem, Canada's national disgrace, et cetera. So, I mean, with, with Danny, the hard part for me was actually learning everything that I had to know about native culture. Not that I learned everything, but that I had to then really hit the wall and not be ego, not let my ego get the better of me and say, you know what? I can't cure him. I can take him to a certain spot and then he has to go to a healer. He has to go and deal with all of this stuff with natives. You know, that, that I have, I, I has had to say, you know, this is as far as I can take you, you know, and, and then he would, but I, I don't think I would have taken him anywhere if I hadn't had help from native psychiatrist at Harvard who really helped me, you know, like I'd say, well, why won't he talk? Right. And he said, he's getting to know you. And I thought, really, two months and this guy has not said a thing? You know? And so then later, I j- joked about it, like five years later when we were a lot closer, I said, yeah, like not talking for months. And he said, oh, and he said, that, that didn't bother me. He said, I, I was get, he said, just what the guy told me, he said, I was getting to know you and I wasn't going to talk to somebody until I knew them. I said, but how did you know me without talking to me? And he said, that's just one way to know people. <laughs> wow. It's crazy. It's amazing the way you've been able to get at all these people and and get them past their circumstances and get them out of their own heads and get them to see. I mean, it's really like magic. Like, what do you think it is about the people who have become heroes in your practice? Like the people that have become heroes and even sometimes in their own families, the other people, like in the case of Laura with her younger brother and sister whose lives did not follow her same trajectory. Like, no, what is it no, that makes somebody able to sort of withstand horrific circumstances, whereas somebody in the same family might not? Do you, is there? Well, I mean, there's probably not an answer to this, but well, no. But look at Laura. Look at Laura. Okay, I mean, her her brother and sister really didn't do well, and they did what you would expect from a life like that, right? right. Yes. But but remember, her father, even though he was neglectful, he was always singing her praises. Mm-hmm. He was always saying that, you know, when she worked on the chip truck with him, he always praised her. And he was like, oh, I knew you'd take care of things. Or I knew, you know, you would do this. Hey, you're my, my number one man, he always said. So, I mean, she was loved in a conditional way. Like, if you do this for me, I'm going to, and she thought he was kind of exciting and, and that that's what a man was. And she thought, what is the big problem here? Why is everybody all upset about him? I mean, it wasn't as though he ever put her down, you know? I mean, he did once when he was in jail and she wore jeans that he didn't like. I said, wow, your father criticized you one time in your whole life? I mean, no wonder she was, you know, and he didn't like the other two kids because they didn't have guts. She was born with a type A personality. He needed that. He reinforced that for his own needs. And she got, her ego was built. I mean, it, it looks like she was neglected and she was, but neglect is just one thing. Wow. Look at Danny, the next case. What about Danny? First five years were fine. Father was fine. Mother was fine. They lived in a happy home. They, I mean, they, they were hunters and gatherers and they lived out in, in, the, in the woods, but they, they were a functioning unit. You know, there was no alcoholism. They were, they were a perfectly happy unit until he was taken, put in residential school, sexually abused. Parents lost their way of living. They, they said they, they couldn't live out in the woods anymore. They had to come in to a reserve. Then they, he, there was no job he could do because he was a hunter. So then he became an alcoholic. Everything fell apart. But the first five years, everything worked. You know, I mean, when you look at someone like Madeline, Madeline really saw the father 
she finally recognized in the end that he loved her, but he had some sort of weakness with psychopathic women. And he, he, that was his weakness and he couldn't stand up to them. And the, it's shocking that he would have a second one after the hell of the first one, right? So, but, and, and then sort of saying, okay, that's his weakness. Can I give, can I forgive him? I mean, that was her, that was part of her issue. And with the mother, I said, it's not important to forgive your mother, right? Mm-hmm. What's important is to see that she was a very damaged person. You know, that she was so damaged, she couldn't love anyone. And, and he, she said, well, then why is she so mean to me? I, I could live with not being loved, right? And she went to private school and she was on the tennis team and on the debating team and, she, and she's gorgeous and everything. So you can say, what's, you know, she just couldn't be perfect enough. And, and I said, you know what it's like to be a mother and not be able to do the job? You're watching all these other mothers, which she called mother hens and overprotective when they were really just being mothers. Yeah. And so naturally you become hostile to this child who has needs and you have no idea how to fulfill them. You had one quote, I don't know if I still, if I can find it or not, but you said something about how at one point you realize that you can stop being angry and upset with your mother and just feel sorry for your mother. And like that transition is such a key point in the therapy too. Yes, absolutely. Because your mother no longer has power over you. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, when you, when, when you say, okay, she's just a sad case. Yeah. You know, and you know, where it used to be like when, you know, she would do this stuff of going to Florida to visit her and the mother would forget to pick her up, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she just stopped doing it. You know, she just said, I, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. And, and then she started going out with a very nice person, a nice man who was kind and good. She married, you know, she married a very wealthy guy who she thought would be just, you know, like the dad and, you know, and he wasn't. Yeah. Right. He was much more, he, she, you know, she married her mother, right. He turned out to be awful. So then when she, when after, toward the end of the therapy, she would, she finally realized, oh, I can love this nice person. I didn't realize that I could love him. I thought I just could be friends with him, you know? Well, the way that you told these stories was so great because each one was sort of unputdownable in its own right, right? The, oh. the, the unexpected twists and turns that, uh, that actually happened. And then the way you handled it, it was so interesting. Tell me a little more about the writing of it. Like the way that you crafted the stories, was it just like, did you use all your notes or like, how did you make them into right. like, these uh, great you know, standalone stories? Right. Well, I, when I, I went back and looked at my notes, I thought they would be completely organized. And I thought, fantastic. I'll just put these notes in a book form and, you know, mm-hmm. Be perfect. I couldn't, I don't know what I, I had said anything. It was, you know, said, it said things like very upset, you know, stuff like, you know, I, I just thought this is not, these notes aren't helpful at all. Right. So then, but then once in a while I would look at the notes and say, oh my God, I forgot that the father killed the cat. Right. I forgot that. Right. You know, like I repressed some of the, the awful stuff, but the conversations had to come back to me. And that's why you have to be kind of attached and bonded to those patients for, to remember those things. I mean, when you see somebody for five years, you can pretty well remember, you can pretty well predict what they would say in different situations. So you must have enough stories to fill like a hundred more books. Are you going to write any more books or what, what's your plan? My plan now is I'm writing, I grew up in a house in Lewiston, New York, which is on the Niagara River connecting to Canada. And I grew up in the New York side. And so I, my, my family's home was involved in the Underground Railroad. So, and then the house next door has seven basements that go down to the river where, so I'm writing from the sort of white abolitionist point of view. I hope that works in this time of, you know, 
So I'm doing that now. You know, but a lot of people want me to write a book. Or the, the publisher wants me to write a book like Good Morning Monster, but with more cases and lighter. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Right. Just don't, don't worry about it. I have people all the time saying to me, what's a good topic? What's hot today? How can I? You know, I said, just you go into your heart and just write like for two hours a day, at least, even if you have, if you have another job, just write for like two hours a day. I mean, because everybody starts writing when they have another job or, you know, they have to support themselves usually, right? So, you, you know, I wrote for two hours before I went into my office. So I, I said, just, you know, just write and don't worry about any of it. Don't reread it. Don't do anything. Just let stream of consciousness take you and then, you know, then go back and you can read it. Don't stop yourself at the end of each sentence and do all that because your most important stuff comes from your unconscious. Most of it pours out and then you're, because that's the only thing that we all have in common. We all have a collective unconscious somewhere, you know, so says Jung, so says Freud, you know, so that people, I mean, why would people relate to a memoir of my four-year-old delivery girl, you know, delivering stuff with a black delivery car driver? Who cares? Only because the thoughts I had are the same thoughts that they had when they were four. So just get all of that out. Don't try to polish it. And then later come back. I find a lot of people are like, you know, they write two pages and then for, you know, four weeks, they try to make it perfect. And then by then you, you, you've lost it. You've lost all of your creative juices. That's great advice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gilner. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your treatment stories with these incredible patients and for showing us what heroes really can look like. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Bye, Zibby. Bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day book blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.